Hello and welcome to Scrutiny as Amplified Cybersecurity Podcast and our Emerging Trends series with industry expert Shane Shook. Today's theme is ransomware, only one outcome of several possibilities of APT and botnets as a service, and one that we focus on too much, meaning we ignore the risks and realities of the others. Welcome, Shane. Thanks for joining us. On our last session, we dug deep into how attackers are purchasing commodity access to target victim estates and why vendors are shifting from passive defences to offer more active defences. So what's new in the cybersecurity sphere? Hi, good morning. The new is, I think, largely focused around how we pay for response and remediation in, uh, in the after effects of these attacks. Specifically, there's been a lot of attention and development of cyber insurance policies, as an example. You pick up any cybersecurity-related news article uh, or conversation, and you're going to hear two terms during that conversation. One will be ransomware, and the other will be cyber insurance, because I think people realize now that there's a direct association between finance as a target and an interest of the activity, and then consequently, people wonder how they can actually pay the costs, either directly on the extortion that's conducted through the ransomware or on the recovery from the destruction that occurs with the use of ransomware. But within that conversation, there's unfortunately, I think, some important points that are being missed. And the most fundamental of those is that ransomware is only, as you said, one possible outcome of advanced persistent threat activities and even of more commodity botnet as a service, service accesses that are being sold on the dark markets. And so too much focus on ransomware ignores the actual risks and the reality of what's occurring prior to the delivery of the ransomware and what the objectives of the attack might have been that the ransomware might have masked or whether the ransomware itself was the objective of the attack. So I tend to call it randomware when I talk to people and try to educate them about focusing on evidence rather than perceptions because attackers really have complex toolkits available to them and the attacker may not be the criminal with the actual objective of the access that the attack provides. Uh, There may be two or more organizations involved in any breach of trust and networks and information services. And ransomware is only one indicator and only one actual outcome. And it's important to really assess what occurs before that final action that ransomware provides occurs, because again, it might simply be masking other activities. And at the least, there are questions that need to be asked about how the access was provisioned, how it was maintained, for what period for what purposes, and uh, consequently what's needed in that victim estate in order to better defend. Right. So what do you think about malware as a service and botnets as a service? So it's really interesting. Um, Finally, after, say, 20 years, the two concepts are better understood. And when I meet with clients or even talk with the press on the rare occasion, These are topics that I've been presenting at conferences for the last 20 years and teaching in different organizations and the work that I do. 
and of course with the interns that work with me and the staff and teams around the world. But it's taken a long time for people to really comprehend that hackers are not the fundamental risk anymore. They were, if you will, the first wave of the evolution of cybercrimes. I've talked for several years about this concept of cybercrime evolution and waves. And recently I updated from three waves, first, second, and third to fourth. And those really, I think, are an effective description of how cybercrime has evolved, where the first wave was constituted by individual attackers, script kiddies, and people that were looking to make a name for themselves. And they're really unorganized, disorganized, really competing with each other. And they led to access brokers who were essentially business people that saw raw talent and the promise of that, that if it could be made into a collective and the product of that collective effort coordinated into what we know now as botnets, then the service could be provided from that botnet for interested third parties to leverage that service. And that became what we call the second wave. And that actually still exists today where you've got independent activists, hacktivists, hackers constantly out finding new ways to gain access to target systems and then selling that access to these bot masters in these dark markets now to help those bot masters expand their botnets. And that's become what's known as an affiliate scheme, as we've seen with botnets as a service now. But along the way, sort of the mid-2000 period between 2008 to 2015 or so, this new concept of APT came about. And APT is advanced persistent threat activities where the botmasters were not only providing access and maintaining access in targeted states, but they were actually curating that access. And in many cases, they were managing the security of the access and the estate more securely than the victim uh, systems managers themselves were doing. And that was because, of course, they were jealously guarding the assets that they had invested time and resources into. Along with that, though, then came the opportunity for a higher level of offering in their service catalogs. So beyond merely providing access as access brokers, if you will, in the botnets as a service, they could also offer different tools and utilities and facilities for interested third parties who in many cases were not technical or are not technical. And of those facilities, of course, there were backdoor Trojans for bank information stealing, personal accounts stealing, private information stealing, eavesdropping, and espionage. And the latest popular iteration, of course, is ransomware. And consequently, that's why I call it randomware, because Fundamentally, what's occurring with these ransomware campaigns and activities is only one of several options available through that brokered service offering by these bot masters and by the malware as a service, if you will, market has evolved. And these bot masters and malware authors have coordinated their activities in many cases. So, for example, we've read interviews that have been given to Russian press, for example, of Reval and Mays 
operators uh, as well as other ransomware as a service offerings. And ransomware as a service, by the way, is another form of malware as a service. Just like in enterprise information technology, we've moved from individual package products with unique license keys into software as a service subscription models, uh, different backdoor malware and most ransomware have evolved into software as a service provisioning models. And that's what we are calling malware as a service. So between the access brokers of the bot masters and the malware as a service SaaS operators of these malicious software offerings, uh, we've seen a coordinated effort with affiliate payment schemes and vendor relationships between these dark market offerings that have evolved us into the third wave. Now, the most recent evolution of cybercrime is what's known as coordinated inauthentic behavior, CIB, what we more commonly call disinformation or influence operations. And that's not so much of an advanced persistent threat activity internally through the provision of botnets as it is leveraging the similar concepts through social networks to spread misinformation and disinformation. But for our purposes of randomware, if you will, in this discussion. The first three waves from individual unassociated hackers through to the collective activities that formed the botnets and the service provisions that those operators then made as access brokers to coordinate then with independent malicious software developers and authors who themselves then created software as a service offerings the focal point then becomes the access broker who provisions for subscribing third parties, whether they're government interests or competitive industry interests or others like organized crime. The access broker is the key point. And it's just really important to understand this relationship between botnets, malware and uh, service operators in order to better understand when an incident occurs like a ransomware can attack against an organization all the different interested third parties in the dark markets so that you understand that simply putting in firewall rules or an antivirus endpoint client is not enough. You also have to consider social media protection, identity and access management protections, a variety of other topics in order to really move into better active defense. Following on from that point, what's your thoughts on the use of botnets and malware as well as expose IT and internal ITM to achieve competitive outcomes of business or political objectives. Yeah, so that going along with what I just said, fundamentally that botnet is a service, the service operators, they're access brokers. They're providing the opportunity for subscribers through the catalogs that anyone can see on the dark web portals or even in many surface web portals. But essentially anyone can subscribe easily, just like you would with Netflix or others to these access brokers catalogs to gain access to a target environment, whether it be a oil company, a bank, a law firm or whatever, either for the direct access to information in that target estate or collateral access that that target might offer to in turn their customers. About 10 years ago, I helped a number of oil companies around the world, for example, deal with an APT activity that was ongoing that was targeted at the oil companies to gain competitive intelligence on oil field exploration engineering data. 
And in the process, we put uh, sinkhole on the command and control network that we noticed was being used via DNS. And we were able to then gather telemetry about the broader victim target base of the attacks. And what we learned is that it wasn't only the direct targets, but it was also the indirect or collateral targets, particularly including the law firms, the lobbying firms, and geotechnical and even accounting firms in some cases that provided services coincidentally to several of the target oil companies. And we've seen that play out many times where the service providers to the target companies are often the point of access sought through the access brokers in order to then leverage the facilities that they've already got. And this is where IT service management tools or IT asset management tools come in handy because many of those service providers, in some cases telecom service providers, such as we saw with APT10 campaign, the service providers have VPNs established with their clients or may have legitimate backdoors established with credentials into the other environments that these malicious access brokers are seeking to compromise and to utilize in their catalogs as, if you will, protected or hidden access points. So rather than deploying malware, which can, in most cases, be detected today with a variety of different uh, endpoint other tools that are leveraged, they'll rather rely on either the creation of access points from collateral networks into target victim networks, or they'll leverage those that already exist, that's their preference, in order to achieve whatever the competitive outcome of their subscriber is. And so what that means is that we have to consider UEBA, as it's called, User Entity Behavior Analysis, which is essentially how often do I normally log into my work network and what resources do I usually interact with, data, file shares, printing, and communications, and what anomalies in the use of my credentials to access and use as resources appear over time. Those anomalies then become signals that we need to pay attention to, and that's the reason for UABA. But it also means we need to consider better ways to prevent the ship from sinking if someone gains access. These ransomware attacks specifically have leveraged Eternal Blue and a variety of other network risks and notoriously leverage IT asset management and service management architecture and supporting tools like SMB, even without exploits, and RDP, Remote Desktop Protocol, and others, because architecturally most companies today have flat networks, which means that essentially we've got a ship floating on the ocean with just a single hull. Now, using that metaphor, most ships today are constructed with bulkheads so that if the hull is penetrated at any point, only a certain section of the hold will fill with water and the ship can remain afloat. Bulkheads concept has been borrowed into network architecture in security to describe network segmentation. And everyone knows it's a better practice, but realistically, almost no one practices it. If you consider law firms, accounting firms, retail networks, banks, 
production assembly operations, almost no one actually constructs segmented networks, even between different offices. VPN access into any one often provides access to the entirety of the estate behind the firewalls through wide area networks and things like that. But even those that do practice segmentation between office locations still are, for the most part, not practicing functional isolation within the business between the functions, for example, between human resources and legal or legal and finance or finance and administration, much less operations or inventory management. And these requirements for UEBA and network segmentation are made even more explicitly evident as important active defenses against the attacks that we're seeing demonstrated as effective with ransomware today. Okay, so what would you suggest organizations do to protect themselves and what are the challenges? That's an interesting thing. So I mentioned a couple of things that have come into importance and I hope that the industry begins to really focus more significantly on network segmentation and network access controls as an example, NAC. Network segmentation, as I mentioned, and not only UEBA from anomaly detection, but also identity and access management more specifically. So auditing active directory rights or directory services rights, understanding the difference between directory services and access management. Many people misunderstand there are two components or in the sphere of IDAM, if you will, you've got directory services like active directory offers. You've got the authentication directory services, the authorization for use. Then you've got PIM and PAM, whether you're talking about network services or endpoint services to data or computer resources or print resources, et cetera. So it's important to understand the importance of and the complexity of identity and access management as a starting point and really reconsider data protection, reconsider service protection, and even fundamentally business interruption from the perspective of who uses what, how, and when, and make that a baseline for assessing anomalies and periodic audits, but use that baseline also for really a rather simple protection, active defense, by promoting two-factor authentication, or what we call step-up challenges, whenever an anomaly occurs. So PAM, such as a product that I like called Remedian, is a good example of this. Um, PAM solution, like a CyberArch or Remedian, will monitor the usual logins to an endpoint or to a data store or an application service. And if some aberrant behavior is noticed, then rather than alerting and waiting for an investigation, what it'll do is it'll simply cause a two-factor challenge to that authorized user. And that simple thing is so effective as an active defense because if it's someone that is utilizing an account takeover tactic, such as leveraging compromised credentials from a dissimilar computer or mobile device than the user's common device, then they won't have the secret or the presentation for challenge of the secret that the authorized user has. And the only discomfort that the authorized user has in that situation is a challenge that appears on their smartphone or on their screen 
or a phone call that they receive saying, do you authorize this access? Is it you? And if it's not, then, of course, you know, the benefit is that they're able to prevent an access that might actually extend into a full compromise or breach of the information services. And similarly, with network access controls and network segmentation, simply by promoting a challenge against a baseline anomaly, these simple techniques with technologies that are available today can dramatically shift the attack surface away from the malicious actors into a control sphere available to the security operators of the organization. Now, with regard to cyber insurance, there's been a lot of it, as I mentioned in the beginning of the chat here, there's been a lot of attention of how do we pay for the effects, the outcomes of ransomware attacks or other attacks. If we are forced to pay an extortion demand, how do we pay for it? If we have to recover from an incident because either the key didn't work, which occurs in well over 20% of the cases that people pay for extortion demands, there's still, unfortunately, well over 20% of the time the keys don't work. Or we just simply have to rebuild systems and recover data and suffer an outage in the meantime that affects our business income. Cyber insurance is cropped up to address all of these things. Unfortunately, while they do get the need and the appetite for this low-frequency event, aside from all the fear, uncertainty, and doubt that's promoted in the press, ransomware still is a low-frequency event, just like any other kind of breach. But because of that, cyber insurance is a good vehicle to help allay that risk for organizations. What they get wrong, unfortunately, is in most cases, the MGAs that are assessing the opportunities for brokers to provide policies of coverage are not very sophisticated in their approach today. They're mostly focused on attack surface management identification through very topical means of external network scans, for example, against an organization's internet-facing services. They largely rely on census or showdown or maybe use Qualys or Rapid7 or Tenable-type scans or homegrown scans against the Internet-facing services. But we all know that most organizations' Internet-facing services are hosted by service providers and are not actually reflective of the organization's access points. And also, in many attack surface management scans that I've reviewed for MGAs and insurance carriers, Nearly all of them have some kind of honeypot or sinkhole or some kind of trap implemented by the service providers or by their IT organizations. And the MJs are largely ignorant of that fact. And so the risks that then they'll relate in the policy pricing, unfortunately, are over-inclusive of that ignorance. They're unable to dissociate the um, deception networks from the actual networks. And in many cases, they overestimate the impact, again, through ignorance, not meant in a negative term, but just the fact of their ignorance of the client's operations, such that, for example, many MGAs won't cover an organization or won't provide a policy underwriting in cases where RDP is exposed, a remote desktop protocol. But that ignores the fact that RDP is a facility that's used by many jump boxes through appropriately described and defined DNZs into thin client operations, et cetera. 
Or, as I mentioned, the RDP might simply be a honey trap. But those are just examples. They're not yet evolved in their offerings to go in and interview the organizations to better understand what services the organizations functionally rely on and utilize as resources of the organization where those resources need the protections of the cyber insurance, not the technologies themselves. And until they do that, there won't be really effective pricing models for cyber insurance that are defensible in competition. And organizations won't have smarter insurance coverage. So there's still a ways to go. So they're getting it right in that cyber insurance is, I believe, an appropriate remedy for this low-frequency event that is a high-impact but low-occurrence risk. That's a perfect situation for insurance to help cover things. But they're getting it wrong in that they're not effectively evaluating the actual risk footprint or thresholds under different scenarios of the attack types according to the evolution of cybercrimes to understand what are the risks that that organization faces by the functions that they rely on information technology and how are those resources protected not only in a passive role but what kind of active defenses do they have to facilitate defense against randomware attacks Perfect. Thanks, Shane. Anything else to add before we go? Not really. I think I have generally mentioned on most of these calls that we do that MSSP services such as Scrutiny offers are really important. But once again, I'll stress, particularly as insurance is becoming more and more of a common discussion point around these issues, MSSPs can help provide information for the MGAs and MGUs to understand the risks in the victim environment or the client environment, rather. But they have to understand that on claims, there's a difference between the monitoring records that MSSPs can provide and the evidence that's actually required to satisfy claims if a claim comes up. And so it's important to understand that MSSPs don't produce evidence, they produce indicators and assist with monitoring and addressing issues, particularly with intelligence from operations. But it's still necessary to have appropriate evidentiary collection and processing and analysis, forensic protocols and providers, which, of course, Scrutiny also offers. Great. Well, we will end it there. Thank you again, Shane, and thank you, everyone else, for tuning in. More information regarding the subject can be found on our website at www.scrutiny.com. If you have any questions or concerns with any of the topics discussed, please get in touch. And check back in soon for our next Emerging Trends episode as we catch up with Shane.